Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Thank you very much indeed, Susan. And can I just add um, my welcome on behalf of the IPR uh, to all of our speakers, particularly those that have come from uh, other countries from around the world, to all of those of you attending uh, here today. And, and, and like Susan, a particular welcome to the two cohorts of our professional doctorate who are here for their residential fortnight in Bath. It's a really good welcome to you. It's great to have you here. Um, as Susan said, the, the symposium is, is focused on contemporary issues in the relationship between evidence and research and policymaking and the politics of policymaking and how that is changing. Um, on the face of it, these are not easy times to be committed to rational deliberation of policy options, to weighing evidence and building public consensus. As Susan says, we're told, we're told we live in a post-truth era in which Expertise and experts are disdained. Policy is made up on Twitter and changed the following week. Uh, and even the most robust academic evidence, to give one example in the UK context, uh, on grammar schools, for example, the most robust, consistent, long-developed evidence can be set to one side uh, when policy is made. Now, there's not much use simply complaining about this. It's our job to try to understand these changes, changes in politics and the policy-making landscape and what they mean for researchers, for academics, for civil society organizations, campaigners, activists, uh, and our fellow citizens in our democracy. These are incredibly important issues for all of us. So the purpose of the symposium is to address them. We aim to bring together not just international and domestic policy concerns, as we do in the program, but academics from different disciplines and theoretical backgrounds with policymakers and practitioners. Uh, and in that respect, I can think of nobody better uh, to start our conference with today than the Right Honourable Douglas Alexander. Douglas is a, a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School, Harvard University Kennedy School, a visiting professor at King's College London. He served as a minister for 10 years uh, in the Labour government, five of those uh, in the cabinet, three as the Secretary of State for International Development, including serving as the UK's Governor of the World Bank. So very important experience of international institutions. After Labour's defeat in 2010, he served as Shadow Foreign uh, Secretary, also uh, running the Labour uh, campaign during the election. And he now acts as a strategic advisor to Vincent Masons and an advisor to Bono on development and investment within and beyond Africa. Um, we're fortunate to have him here today, actually, because um, he has engagements in the next week, which include attending the donor conference for the replenishment of the Global Fund in Montreal. That's the fund, as you will all know, uh, that spearheads the fight against TB, malaria, and AIDS, that's happening at the weekend. Uh, Justin Trudeau has convened uh, that conference. And then there's a leader summit on the refugee crisis, the global refugee crisis, that President Obama is convening next week in New York as the UN General Assembly uh, convenes. So there is a lot to look forward to uh, and discuss. Douglas, can I just ask you to come up? Douglas, welcome. So we're going to do this as an in-conversation uh, event, which we thought would be a, a, a way of exploring things in, in a more informal setting and enable people here also to ask their questions and to engage in the debate. Uh, I want to start, Douglas, by just to sort of give people a, an introduction to your background, a bit of your backstory, just yep. how you got involved in, how did you come to be a politician? What was your path into politics? Uh, well, firstly, thank you, Nick, for the opportunity to be here in Bath. I have never been to the University of Bath before, I admit. But what an extraordinarily beautiful campus, I have to say. Um, the relative merits of an academic setting or a Whitehall shifted quite significantly <laughs> as my taxi arrived. <laughs> Count yourself blessed. Um, and it's genuinely good to be here because in terms of somebody who understands that nexus of the academy and theory and 
the reality of what happens inside the sausage machine of Downing Street and of Whitehall, I can think of nobody better to have the conversation with than Munich. Um, in terms of why I became a politician, I think there's probably two principal drivers. One was to serve a community and the other was to serve a cause. I was quite rare in contemporary politics in representing the area that I grew up. Um, my mother was a local doctor, my father was a local minister in the Church of Scotland. And at its best, I think, being a constituency member of Parliament gives an integrity to the job of the MP, because it's a weekly reminder when you sit conducting surgeries or uh, engage in discussions with your constituents, that at a fundamental level, it's not about you as the representative, it's about the community that you're given the immense responsibility and privilege of serving and uh, walking with. So serving a community, but also serving a cause. I came into politics because I had a, a burning sense of, of appetite for change. Uh, the, the area that I grew up in had seen the closure of the Linwood car plant where many of my friends' parents worked and had lost their job. Um, I joined the Labour Party therefore as a 14-year-old um, uh, in 1982, which on any reckoning is a strange decision at a remarkably <laughs> stupid period of Labour history. Um, but it was for me an article of faith. I, uh, we're talking about evidence today. I didn't really have evidence. I wasn't old enough to really remember the Callaghan or the Wilson governments. It was an article of faith for me that politics could be a force for change. And truthfully, after 18 years in uh, Parliament and, and those years in government, I'm more convinced today that politics is a, is a, has a capacity for both progressive or reactionary change than that day I joined the Labour Party many, many years ago. You, you came into Parliament in the, in the sort of, if you like, the heyday of the, of the New Labour era, you know, when it was, yep. Blair had a huge majority, you know, um, looked set for a long period of government, as indeed turned out to be the case. And you became a minister relatively quickly, mm -hmm. um, moving on from the back benches. Can you just say a little bit about that transition to ministerial life? What, what actually happens and is different when you go into a government department and yep. start making policy? Well, the first thing was, that makes it sound a bit like I was a kind of Manchester United fan joining the winning team. I mean, because I joined the Labour Party in 82, the formative experiences of politics for me were of repeated and bitter defeat in 83, in 87, and in 92. And in that sense, it felt like a very long journey at the time. In terms of the immediate transition that you describe, I had been in a very fortunate and quite unusual position of having a lot of contact with Tony Blair as then Prime Minister, with Gordon Brown as Chancellor, because of the non-ministerial work that they'd asked me to do. When I was elected in November 1997, so just six months after the general election in May, very quickly Tony Blair asked if I would work on the Scottish devolved elections. We were having elections for the Scottish Parliament for the first time in 1999. And I, I remember we won those elections kind of against the odds, Tony called me into his study in Downing Street and said, on any objective measure, you should be a minister tomorrow in terms of the work you've done for us. But I need you to help us win the next general election. And I won't disadvantage you. I'll bring you into government the day after the 2001 election as a minister of state, missing out the parliamentary undersecretary year. He said, if you, if you coordinate the general election of 2001. So actually, that meant for the year from 2000-2001, I was in and out of Downing Street all the time, engaged in political meetings, planning the election and working out what to do. And so far from the experience of government making me feel I was moving closer to the centre, I suddenly found myself on the eighth floor of the DTI as the Minister for um, 
e-commerce and competitiveness, that was a fancy word for the Minister for the Post Office, um, <laughs> and actually feeling myself more distant from quite a lot of the decisions that were being taken by government than had been the experience. And also having a private office, I came to genuinely revere the civil service during my time as a minister, but it felt like there was a group of people whose job was to make sure that you had no contact with the outside world other than via the private office. So, if you like, from a very flat management structure with very clear objectives in terms of a sense of team and network working towards a general election victory, suddenly even the building that I was in reminded you that the civil service is still an extraordinary hierarchical structure and actually you mediate a lot of your relationships through the civil service. So the experience of policies as a, as a minister is you have this sort of very intense political relationships with your colleagues, mm. with people that, you know, number 10 and others, at the same time as you, you have the experience of a, uh, an unpolitical bureaucratic machine, very good at serving your needs, yep. but you have this sort of mix between the, the sort of relationships and friendships you have as a politician and those that you have to have as a minister with civil servants and others. And, I suppose that's one of the things for people trying to understand policymaking in politics mm. is that politicians have to practice these different crafts and they have different friendships and different relationships with people depending on whether it's about politics and personal relationships totally or true. it's about making decisions as a minister, talking to your civil servants, talking to stakeholders. Um, I became a minister in my early 30s and many people would say, oh, is it right that somebody should be a minister at that relatively young age? I think one of the virtues of having younger ministers is humility, that actually I knew I had a lot to learn and I think if I'd maybe been, I don't know, a 55-year-old or 60-year-old former council leader who had run everything in my town for 20 or 30 years, I might have been less open to, for example, the extraordinary capabilities that the civil service bring to the table. So in that sense, it was for me a process where you relied on your officials to raise your knowledge base but they had a reasonable expectation of you to exercise and be held accountable ultimately for the judgment that you were making. So if you take a small example like appearing in front of select committees, that really matters. It's both one of the areas where you've got a responsibility to reflect government policy, explain the decisions that your department or you as an individual have made, and you're subject to quite intense scrutiny from um, backbenchers on all sides of the House of Commons. The way that I ended up preparing for that, I, I was a lawyer before I got into Parliament, and so I remember thinking, listen, I just need to read myself into this brief. And I would I particularly remember the weekend I became the Transport Secretary. I spent the entire weekend reading ring binders about transport policy in case any official asked me a question about transport policy on the Monday morning. I can say how I learned to be more effective at starting new jobs in time. But the experience of preparing for select committees, ultimately I ended up doing in four hours, which was whereby I would have three tutorials effectively with my civil servants. And I would say in the first tutorial, you're gonna teach me in terms of areas of policy that I need to be across for this hearing. In the second session, I'm gonna hopefully be asking relatively sensible questions. And in the third session, I want to be match ready to appear in the Commons. And in that sense, the first time I did that, I worried that officials would think, well, listen, we've got this ministry who doesn't know anything. Actually, overwhelmingly, if you respect the civil service, they respect you back. And in that sense, I did 360-degree appraisals. I did a whole range of different techniques to, to try and improve the way I worked as a minister over those 10 years. And actually, overwhelmingly, I feel the civil service were capable of providing a very high level of service to you 
if you had the craft and the skill to know how to extract that knowledge effectively. But your basic point, which is you're a fish that swims in many different seas, you're a public face for the government, you've got relationships with your colleagues in number 10 in the cabinet in your department, you've got relationships with the civil service, you've got obviously a relationship most fundamentally with the public. All of those are called and, and are demanding when you're doing the job effectively. Now, sort of moving that up a level, after you've been Secretary of State for Transport, you became Secretary of State for International Development. Yep. There you're dealing with a, a large budget. Um, you have the politics of Whitehall to navigate with your colleagues in the Cabinet, um, with the rest, with the Treasury and others. But you're also negotiating with international institutions, yep. with um, civil society organisations, with donor, you know, recipient and donor countries and so on. Can you just say a little bit about the sort of complexity of that policy-making architecture in DFID and how it might differ from being, say, you know, Secretary of State for Transport or Education? Um, well, firstly, probably just I should start on a personal note. In growing up in the Scottish manse that I grew up in in Renfrewshire, there was a Christian aid poster on our kitchen wall that said, live more simply so others can simply live. And I was delivering with my parents red Christian aid envelopes before I was even delivering red Labour Party leaflets. And in that sense, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm a veteran of fair trade uh, campaigning because I remember campaign coffee and quite how disgusting it tasted <laughs> at various stages of my upbringing. So in that sense, when Gordon Brown in the summer of 2007 asked me, at that point I was transport, Secretary of State for Transport and Secretary of State for Scotland, which job I wanted, I said I wanted to be Development Secretary. So for me it was a, it was a culmination and a fulfilment of a long-standing interest. Um, it does have a complex network of relationships. Let's start with Whitehall. Um, I, had very f I got married in 2001 and I had virtually no politicians at my wedding. But two of the politicians who were at my wedding were David Miliband and Des Brown. And in the summer of 2007, when I was appointed Development Secretary, Des became the Defence Secretary. He'd been the Defence Secretary for a year at that point, And David Miliband became the Foreign Secretary. And given uh, the country's engagement at that time, still in the very latter stages of Iraq, and significantly in Afghanistan, um, it was very important, I felt, that we communicated within the Whitehall machine a joined-up approach to policymaking. So we decided to meet on a fortnightly basis, just the three of us as ministers. That was, um, it's hard to think of something that would have been, that would have given a greater cause for concern amongst our officials than that three cabinet ministers would voluntarily, without official support, decide to have a conversation about their shared agenda. This was, you would have thought the sky was about to fall in. But in that sense, my experience of working with Foreign Office and with, um, MOD officials and, and teams was that those relationships across Whitehall were extremely good in country where people were forced to work together, actually very good at a departmental level amongst ministers, but the soggy centre was much weaker, where you were much more vulnerable to a kind of departmentalitis, that there was a sense of protection. So I worked very hard when I was at DFID to try and break down some of that silo thinking and make sure that we worked effectively together. Um, in terms of international relations, because Britain committed itself to 0 0.7 and we were on an upward trajectory, we actually had a lot of influence in international institutions. So, for example, in 2007, when we had the replenishment of the World Bank IDA in Berlin, we became the largest single donor to IDA that year. And, and that empowered a reform agenda which I pushed as the British governor of the World Bank. So that process in time yielded 
an additional seat for Sub-Saharan Africa on the Board of Deputies in the bank. It pushed forward the idea of an independent and transparent appointment of the President of the World Bank, which is a, which is a contest as yet unwon. There's a, there's a letter in the Financial Times this morning arguing for exactly that process. But in that sense, there was, if you like, a correlation between the muscle that Britain brought to these international institutions and the commitment we brought to those institutions with the leverage and influence that we were able to exercise. And so one other administrative change that I undertook, we were a very major donor to the bank at that point, but historically, DFID had been represented by a Treasury official who sat both on the IMF board, um, executive board, and on the World Bank board. I said, listen, this is daft. We are committing very significant sums of British taxpayers' money. There is a big and important IMF agenda, but there's equally a big and important World Bank agenda. So we ended up appointing, for the first time, an executive director who was a DFID employee while the Treasury held on to the IMF brief. So there are some process and machine changes that you can make. Undoubtedly, resource makes a difference in terms of influence. But also, you need to have ministers who are interested and engaged in influencing the multilateral system. Because my experience of observing Gordon Brown in the run-up to the G20 meeting after he became Prime Minister in 2007, I travelled with him to Brazil and to Chile and elsewhere, was the extraordinary level of intellectual, political, almost physical energy that he committed to securing outcomes from the multilateral system. And again, I'd observed that back in 2005 with Tony Blair and Glen Eagles, that the multilateral system is an extraordinary force multiplier for committed ministers, but it requires an extraordinary commitment of time, force and energy to yield those changes. So I mean, the implication of that is that if you don't have governments uh, who are committed to trying to work through, spend time on the multilateral institutions, make that a part of their agenda, who concentrate just on domestic relationships, domestic politics, then yep. you don't have the achievements you describe. And also there's a level of ambition. I mean, I was talking to one of your colleagues um, in the foyer about the um, uh, forum on aid effectiveness, which took place in Accra when I was um, uh, with the Secretary of State for International Development. I, I well remember getting off the plane in Accra and um, reviewing the draft communique of that summit with a co-conspirator of mine, Bert Kunders, who was the International Cooperation Minister of the Netherlands and is now the Foreign Minister in the Netherlands, and both of us agreeing that the draft communique was really a lowest common denominator document that had been drafted by officials before ministers even arrived. Hmm. And, and it led to a fairly fundamental conversation saying, what's the point of getting on a plane to Accra if we're not going to try and improve the outcomes of this summit? And the International Aid Transparency Initiative was one of the outcomes that was yielded from, from that summit. But it was exactly the same in the World Bank. When you used to go to the spring meetings and the autumn meetings of the bank, I used to sit next to um, the uh, Bahraini and the Saudi representatives in the Board of Deputies. There was a beautifully prepared piece of paper, which was the talking points for the respective ministers. The impression you had was that had been written some weeks before by an official in their finance ministry or their international development department, but that, that the ministers, unless they were careful, were simply a ceremonial bauble on the, on the prior work that had been done by officials. And I always felt that that was a disservice to the mission of the bank and a disservice to the responsibility you had to try and shove the ball further up the park when you were there. And in that sense, it's quite possible to be part of the multilateral system but not actually drive it. And I think that's actually something that I learned from 
more senior ministers within the British government when I was younger, which was actually these institutions can be engaged with. I, I long remember asking um, Gordon Brown's then private secretary why Gordon had been as effective in the IMF as chancellor in securing debt reduction. And uh, he said, he's now a very senior official for Cameron, he said, I'd never before seen a chancellor engage other finance ministers as fellow politicians. Mm. And actually, some of these meetings are quite dull. Mm. And if, as a chancellor, you sit there and you say, listen, we can actually do this on debt reduction and engage both on the technical aspects of it, but on the moral and political aspects of it as well, this official said to me that was transformative to the conversation within the IMF Board of Deputies. And in that sense, that was what I'd heard about and learned during my journey as a minister, and it meant I was determined at the bank to try and affect change when I could. So, I mean, that leads very nicely to the sort of question then of, of evidence and the making of decisions. I mean, you've described there a process where more is achieved because moral and normative con you know, considerations come into play with kind of political skill and engagement yep. as a politician with presumably an evidence base of what will be effective in meeting certain goals. Can you just say then, you know, just in your, you know, you're in the DFID, you know, you've got your, you've concluded a spending round, you know, you've got another big increase in funding towards the yep. 0.7. You know, how do you go about saying, right, okay, what evidence base do we need to do to spend this money effectively to meet our development objectives? Well, just say something about that kind of process of decision making. Well, one of the changes I initiated when I got to DFID was to create a strategy board, and that was essentially to ensure that there was a standing forum in which the DGs, the director generals of the respective areas of policy, encountered and engaged with ministers in a structured but relaxed fashion. As in, I always think you are best to try and take um, high-pressure decisions in low-pressure environments. So actually, it's what my friend and colleague Des Brown used to call a kind of what's really going on in conversation. And I didn't want to be in a position where my only engagement with officials was when the ministerial submission had found its way up the hierarchy and reached your desk. So in that sense, I think government benefits from having ministers who are, first of all, genuinely want to be in the department and are committed to the mission of the department. Secondly, are intellectually curious and, and comfortable in engaging with officials, many of whom have committed decades of their life to developing policy expertise in those areas. I think if there is a weakness of the British system, it is the vulnerability to departmental capture, as in, I feel the policy-making process within Whitehall involves some truly outstanding officials who see it as their job to reach into the academy and elsewhere for ideas, but that can at times become a bottleneck. And when I was often in Washington, and gathered together development thinkers or thinkers on development security or whatever was the issue of the day, I was always quite humbled by the ecology of policy knowledge that was on tap to policymakers in Washington, not just formally within their department, but in that wider ecology of the academy. And in that sense, I would sincerely say to this audience and, and in this setting, it really matters to make sure that there is effective policy evidence and, and, and an understanding of how that evidence can reach the decision makers table. Mm. Because if you've got the right ministers and a willingness and officials to engage, that kind of thinking can make a huge impact. Yeah. Now, I suppose the other issue that that raises is also the sort of change in politics that we've been touching on this morning. You know, that 
particularly perhaps since the financial crisis, that you yep. see this sort of fragmentation of politics, a rise of populist parties, um, an environment in which it seems much more difficult to do steady consensus building politics of the kind perhaps some of us thought you know we, yep. we've grown up with you know you're, you're a student of politics you know you study american politics particularly mm. closely um what do you think has changed in politics in the sort of last if you like the last decade or so um a lot um let me just make one other point in terms of, of development policy thinking and then I'll, I'll come to your broader question I'll tell it by reference to a, a, an anecdote. When I was in my first ministerial job, I was Minister for E-Commerce and Competitiveness. Um, the Prime Minister, prior to my appointment, had committed Britain as its target to have the um, fastest and most competitive broadband market in the G7. And I subsequently discovered that this policy had been invented by James Purnell, a very good friend of mine who subsequently went on to be a cabinet colleague with me, and he had written that we were going to be the most um, uh, broadest and comprehensive um, broadband network in the G7 in 10 years. And Tony Blair, on the way to delivering the speech, scored out 10, said, that's not ambitious enough, let's make it five. Mm -hmm. So for that entire year, I lived with the consequences of that one change. But I was asked to go to a meeting in Downing Street with um, Gordon Brown, who was then the Chancellor, Tony Blair is the Prime Minister, and I was asked to deputise on behalf of Patricia Hewitt, which is probably why Patricia was a good minister, because she realised what was coming, and sent me as the sacrificial lamb. And this was proposing that we consider a uh, network of um, fat cables, ISDN cables, around the UK in order to meet the target, which had considerable public expenditure consequences. So I went into this meeting, sat on the famous kind of sofa in Tony Blair's office with my three-page brief from the DTI on why an extensive cable network around the UK was a good idea. And Gordon came and sat next to me with probably a 40 or 45-page brief from the public expenditure teams in the Treasury as to why this was a remarkably stupid idea <laughs> and just kind of devastated me. I mean, he was a friend, so in that sense, he did it with his characteristic charm. But in that sense, I left the meeting in no doubt that we weren't going to have a cable network around the UK. But the reason I tell that story is ministers' effectiveness in large measure is driven by the quality of the policy and evidence that they bring to the table. Now, of course, you rely on ministers being intellectually capable or personally confident enough to engage with the chancellor or the prime minister. But the reason I got so comprehensively done over wasn't that I wasn't willing to have the discussion or the argument. I just didn't have the evidence base. And in that sense, the Treasury had a repository of knowledge and authority that just outgunned the DTI massively on that day. And I used to tell that story in Diffid and say, there's no unwillingness on my part to argue the case, whether with the MOD or with the FCO, in terms of what's the right policy outcome. But it's not about machismo on the part of the ministers. It's about the quality of our ideas and the strength of our evidence. And in that sense, I would genuinely and sincerely say evidence at that level of policy making does matter because it's critical in the decisions that governments actually make. In terms of um, how politics is changing, yes, it is changing profoundly. And I think this will be a period of history It is easier to under, maybe it's true for every period, but certainly this period is easier to understand in retrospect. I think we will look back and think, or our kids and grandkids will look back and think, why did we think an event as seismic as the global financial crisis was not going to have a profound impact on how politics was done as well as on the economy and as well as on the lives and opportunities of millions of our fellow citizens? 
And I think what's emerging is that the, the global financial crisis trashed the public's confidence in the powerful, not just in bankers or in regulators, but in politicians as well. And if you want to make sense of this country's had enough of experts and the Brexit vote, I think it's impossible um, to do so without understanding the, the collapse in trust that followed the financial crisis and quite how fertile that territory has proved for populist, nationalist, xenophobes, a range of, of forces that were more marginal a decade ago. And if I tried to make sense of what's happened, if I look at the United States, as I say, I'm spending a fair amount of time in the States at the moment, what's most striking about the Trump phenomenon and the Brexit vote is, is its similarities, not its differences. I would argue that both the Trump phenomenon in terms of winning the Republican candidacy and being competitive in the presidential race, and on the other hand, what we went through on the 23rd of June, sees a coincidence of three forces. There is undoubted economic anger, a sense of people feeling that the economy is rigged and works against them, flat real wages, everything you've spent years working and thinking about. Secondly, cultural anxiety, a, a deep fear among sections of society that they don't have a place that will be valued in the world that is becoming. And in that sense, that explains the kind of hateful comments we've heard about Mexicans and Muslims in the United States and a lot of the anxiety that's felt about immigration here in the UK. But thirdly, that's topped off with a deep sense of alienation from politics and how politics has been conducted. And if you see a coincidence of economic anger, cultural anxiety, political alienation, then you get very disruptive forces. And so if you look at Donald Trump, many of the comments that most offend those of us who don't share his worldview are actually the very reason that people are voting for him. You know, if you are part of the white working class in America at the moment, uh, somebody said to me, if you're in, a, in an abusive relationship, you will welcome a bully coming into your home to protect you from your abuser. There's a whole swathe of the American population who feel no stake in the maintenance of the status quo because they feel the status quo has been massively disadvantageous to them. So the outrageousness of his comments are not for them a disqualifier, but evidence that he's different and that he's authentic and is speaking for their interests. And in that sense, the, the bug is the feature, if you like. And, and my sense is that in, there is going to be a very competitive race in the coming weeks. I mean, these, these, before I open it up to the audience for questions, I mean, these, these trends you describe appear to have affected centre-left parties, progressive parties, more than the parties of the right, um, making it much harder for parties like the Labour Party and others to, to govern. And in particular, whether it's possible to unite the kind of liberal cosmopolitan people in the cities who vote for progressive parties with the disadvantaged post-industrial white working class voters in particular that you've described. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you think there's, that we, that kind of, that structural division in our electorate and in our politics is kind of here to stay and that identity politics are the only sorts of things that can kind of speak to any of that or that it is possible to kind of reforge the sorts of coalitions that in different periods of US, yeah. European, British history have kind of mobilised progressive coalitions? Listen, it's a fascinating question and, and I think about that a lot. I mean, uh, incidentally, there was a great article on this very subject by David Brooks in the New York Times last week where he said the real divide that is splitting both the Democrats and the Republicans are those who see globalization as a wind at their back, pushing them forward, or a force in their face pushing them backwards. And he said that is dividing the Democrats 
Sanders-Clinton as surely as it's dividing Jeb Bush and, and uh, Donald Trump on the Republican side. Here in the UK, I would say a couple of things, and naturally I probably draw on my experience in Scotland. First of all, class as a lived experience and a badge of self-identification has been in retreat in Britain for a long time. Mm. So if the future of a progressive political party like the Labour Party is contingent on having a growing or large section of the population self-identifying and seeing their life and their prospects through class identification, that's very bad news for the Labour Party. Because actually, what I think you've seen is a, 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 a diminution of the number of people who have personal experience of trade union membership, have personal experience of large industrial workplaces, see themselves as having that sense of class solidarity. Does that mean the progressive tradition is done? Absolutely not. Um, but I do think it begs questions as to how a progressive political party renews itself in modernity. And on that journey for me within the Labour Party, I joined in 82, and as I say, Labour came into power, as you know, in 1997. Part of, part of my software, all of our software at that time, was saying, it's a given that Labour cares. The question is, is Labour competent? And so the answer of that generation of Labour politicians was to say, we need to establish credibility, but it's pretty much a given that Labour has the authentic concerns of a significant portion of the British public at, at heart and, and want to deliver it. I don't think that's a given anymore. And in that sense, I think it's essential for modern political parties to recognise that the twin metrics by which you secure majority support is competence and authenticity. And in that sense, I think if you have authenticity at the cost of competence, people are not going to vote for you in sufficient numbers. But if you only offer a rather empty, desiccated competence and don't recognise a yearning for idealism, for affinity, for belonging, it's self-limiting as well. So my sense is that the, the, the politics of identity that we've seen rise, if I'm honest, I continue to find morally unattractive at root why did I want to be the development secretary? Why do I care passionately about progressive politics? Because ultimately, I believe in the equal worth of every human being, and I believe that what we share in common in our humanity matters much more than our fascinating differences. So a politics that defines itself by difference is morally and will always be morally unattractive to me. It just, it's not my politics. You know, I get up in the morning and think, how do we end poverty? I don't get up in the morning and think, how do we end Britain? And in that sense, nationalism has never held an appeal for me. But I need the humility to say, once people stop believing in something, they'll believe in anything. And if the experience of somebody in Scotland is that they get up in the morning and they listen to BBC Scotland or they buy a copy of the Scottish Sun and they then travel on a train that has a saltire painted on it called ScotRail, their sense of national identity is easy, immediate and daily and if they feel no connection to conventional party politics, that makes quite an attractive resting place and identity. I'm Scottish. Mm. And, and my sense in terms of both the 45% in the independence referendum and actually the vote for the SNP in the subsequent general election had a lot to do with people demanding that people recognise them in their Scottish identity. And in that sense, I think progressive party politics needs to understand that yearning for affinity, belonging, significance and contribution. And if progressive politicians just become 
detached cosmopolitans, that's very bad news. Okay, let's, let's open this up to some questions then from the audience. There's a microphone um, at the back there. Um, if you could wait to answer your, ask your question until the microphone has arrived, I'll start with the gentleman here. Yep, if you could bring the mic down, that'd be great. Thank you. Uh, the Labour Party is currently looking at how it can review its um, national policy forum and its policy-making process. How do you think we can uh, build in a respect for an expectation for evidence in that policy-making process within the party? Okay, Let, let's take a, we'll take a, a class sure. and then we'll come back. So, yeah, yeah, colleague here, yeah, if you could get the mic, yeah. Thank you. Uh, my name is Ali, I'm from Pakistan. I'm currently is a doctoral program uh, at IPR. So uh, this, uh, this question is on sort of an international development and the politics of engagement with the host countries, especially beneficiary countries. Um, and I'm not sure if the, this is the most diplomatic question I'm going to ask. <laughs> but uh, still, I think I should ask. Um, so uh, uh, DFID manages uh, the education sector program in 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 couple of provinces in Pakistan and it's I think it's one of the largest uh, like foreign aid investments which DFID has made um, any part of the world um, my my question is uh, like uh, how much wh wh who is the like a driving seat who is on the driving seat when it comes to the uh, actual outcome of the education policies in a, in, a, in a recipient country. And I ask this question precisely because I had been part of uh, such uh, like uh, uh, missions and such, such uh, uh, I would say, also the teams as, as a consultant. Uh, what I witnessed is that in, in, in some meetings, uh, let's say the, uh, the officials uh, from, the, from the UK aid uh, you know, openly describe uh, aid as being um, a conduit to actually exercise more influence on domestic policy making. Right. So, uh, so yeah. power relationships can yes. between. Yeah. Okay. And then, gentleman at the back there, and then woman here, and then we'll come for Douglas. Yeah. Thank you. I am a colleague of Ali. I'm from Saudi Arabia, and you mentioned uh, Donald Trump. So I have to ask: Do you think it's an aberration, or is it going to create a problem uh, for policymakers? Uh, over the long term. Okay, and then, yeah, and just, yeah, down to Helen, yeah, sorry. I didn't, yeah. See, Nick is a very experienced chair, and if you get four questions, you can try and forget the really difficult one that you don't, <laughs> that you don't know the answer to. I'll try to make Helen, mine yeah, as difficult as possible then. Um, <laughs> I was really struck by um, what you said about the, the very rich ecology of policy knowledge that seems to be available to policymakers um, in Washington. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what makes up that ecology and how it compares and contrasts to the, the ecology that exists in the UK around policy knowledge. Okay, okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll rely on Nick to prompt me as we do them in reverse order. First of all, listen, we are blessed by some extraordinary development thinking and institutions here in the UK, whether it's the ODI, whether it's the kind of work that Nairi has done in Oxford with Paul Crowley and others. There are, there are genuine thought leaders and significant capability here in the UK. My point would be the British Civil Service, because of its neutrality, 
prides itself on being the primary source of policy information and evidence to ministers. And I would argue the optimal outcome is to harness that knowledge, but to regard it as necessary but insufficient to have a completely holistic picture. So, for example, I used to travel a lot as the Development Secretary. Why did I do as much of that on-the-ground travel? Partly it was to meet the teams of staff who were in-country, but critically also to meet with NGOs, civil society organisations and partner governments to get a sense from them in terms of the effectiveness of the policies we were implementing. So, I remember very clearly on one visit I made to the DRC being deeply unconvinced by what officials had previously told me as to the utility of our spending on health and education. It wasn't that that wasn't worthwhile. It was that when you travelled in Eastern Kivu and saw what was happening in terms of the security situation, you realised unless we had security sector reform in the DRC, we could be pouring a huge amount of money into a problem that was literally insoluble. Now, that throws up quite difficult policy challenges because, for example, it meant we were committing British taxpayers' money to scrub lists of apparent salaries being paid to DRC soldiers. That's nothing like as easy to sell to the British public as saying we're going to inoculate kids or pay for teachers. But actually, if you want a rules-based system and systems that operate in somewhere like the DRC, it was actually an essential part of that development journey. So in that sense, it's not that I disdain what the civil service do, far from it. I just think that ministers are at their best when they have a perspective beyond exclusively the advice that's offered to them by officials. And certainly in my encounters in Washington, the, the availability of those alternative sources of ideas, knowledge and evidence was, was a very powerful combination. So uh, Trump, is he going to, if he wins, what's the kind of consequence? I suppose that's a part of the question. But, but even if he doesn't, has he let some things out of the bag which are hard, can, can be hard to put back? Yes, and I think, I think a lot of people are quite complacent in thinking if Trump loses to Hillary Clinton, then the Trump phenomenon will end with him um, and with his defeat. And I actually think we have to be mindful, even if he loses, um, the Trump phenomena will continue to shape and alter the parameters of, of conversation. I'm afraid he's changed the terms of discourse within the United States already, but I don't think you should attribute that to exclusively his attributes as a candidate. I think it's that for once, you know, I've got a good friend in the Democrats who says this is the first time in a decade the Republican base has found a candidate that shares their authentic views. And in that sense, that section of the electorate are going to continue to be there. The extent to which social media is altering the parameters of conversation so that far from broadening the conversation, it can at times narrow the conversation and be an echo chamber of people's prejudice rather than an opportunity to extend their knowledge, I think is going to continue. Um, and... I think in that sense, unless the fundamental sense of anxiety, alienation and grievance that significant numbers of voters feel is addressed, it will find expression whether in a different candidate or in a different party. I mean, the dynamic has moved from a conventional left-right politics shaped by ideology to an insider-outsider politics shaped by populism, where the defining attribute of the candidate is anger and a capacity to amplify that anger and caress that sense of grievance rather than acknowledge that anger and offer answers. And actually those 
kind of anger-based candidates are doing pretty well at the moment, right around advanced democracies. So in that sense, I think that's real and extends far beyond Trump's candidacy as an individual. And I think it, it poses a very real challenge to politicians who don't see simply the amplification of anger as being the, the reason to go into politics. Ali's question then on um, donor countries using aid as leverage and political power. Um, I think it's naive to suggest that, that aid doesn't secure any leverage. The question is, in the service of what does it secure that leverage? You know, I make no apology for saying if we help leverage girls' education in Pakistan or anywhere in the world, that's basically a good thing. If I learn one thing as development secretary, and I'll learn many, the biggest and best single investment you can make in the future of a country is girls' education. And in that sense, having that conversation and that discussion as to the merits of ensuring equal access to education, I think, is a legitimate conversation. Similarly, leveraging transparency is a good thing. I think basically empowering, you know, we used to have aid effectiveness frameworks coming out of our ears at DFID. The best means of guaranteeing the effective use of public money is to have a strong and effective free press, a strong and healthy civil society sector, and parliamentarians not living in fear of their lives, able to hold executives to account, and free and independent judiciary capable of reaching effective decisions in relation to corruption. So in that sense, I think it would be naive to pretend that there is no influencing inherent in the development um, uh, process, but I think it's right to be very mindful and very open about what that leverage is, is, is aimed at achieving. Um, and so in terms of country-led development, building sustainable systems, whether in education in Pakistan or in health or elsewhere, I think those are legitimate and important, but worthy of effective and continued scrutiny. And just quickly, is the Labour Party d debating evidence or is it just in divided camps in their echo chambers? Um, I, think the, I think the evidence would point to the latter <laughs> the, right, right now. Okay. Um, I hope that will change. Um, I mean, again, I'm, I'm now old enough that when I joined the Labour Party, we used to have resolutionary socialism, where we would pass a resolution on Northern Ireland or nuclear disarmament or the importance of the United Nations or whatever it was, and all too often that would be the end of the matter. And the establishment of a national policy forum, far from being an attempt to control or close down democracy in the Labour Party, I personally believe was a genuine and sincere attempt to learn from the experience of the Social Democrats in Sweden and say, how do we have a more mature, open, discursive process of policy making that is genuinely enabling and engaging to a broader group of people than people who would come to a branch meeting and in a very adversarial way either vote for or vote against a particular resolution. Now, in that sense, there's scepticism towards that view of the National Policy Forum, but my instinct is that that approach to policy making, which is let's actually not sit in opposite corners passing resolutions at each other, but instead get round the table and discuss the evidence, is a, is a better route for a modern political party to try and ensure evidence informs the policies that subsequently emerge.